Welcome everyone to the 101 episode of the New Gen Mindset podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. Uh, Nick, we got mountains of snow outside. Mm -hmm. Gold has been rejected, mm -hmm. but Bitcoin just keeps pumping. And mm -hmm. I have suspicion to believe that this is an institution that's preparing for something that's coming in January. But well, not a lot of retail people know that right now. No, And there's a lot of converging variables at the same time. You just saw U.S. Navy ships dealing with conflict. You have China warning America. You have conflict in the Middle East that's expanding further. At the same time, you have this like, you have this like growing hype in the financial markets again. But again, is this sustainable? Or is this just like you know a, an opportunity to pull the rug under the retail market? So yeah, and I think going into the end of the year, you never know what to expect, especially when governments are ultimately involved in any type of decision making. Right? Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of talk about. 2024 being a crazy year, uh, maybe some comparables to 1929 that's yet to be determined. But uh, what we wanted to do here today is uh, bring on a gentleman who's uh, been very active in interviewing, uh, as well as an investor who's been in the space for quite some time. Uh, and he's an entrepreneur, public speaker, investor, and he's the host of the popular YouTube channel, Heresy Financial. Uh, which he's helped millions of people achieve financial success by sharing key knowledges and insights on how the financial system works, which again, not a lot of people know, but this is why we need to amplify the voices of people that understand what's going on. But uh, calling in today from uh, beautiful uh, Arizona in the United States with us here today is uh, Joseph Brown. Welcome to the uh, New Gen Mindset Podcast. Hey, well, thank you so much for having me on. Looking forward to it. Of course. So Joseph, as usual, we always like to kind of get to start off by knowing our guests. So just go down a little rabbit hole. Tell us about your past and how you really shifted your career into what you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. So when uh, my wife and I got married, we were broke. Um, we had just graduated from college and I had a ton of student loans. My wife had some as well. And I was making less than minimum wage at the time. And so uh, we had, you know, we had nothing and no way to dig ourselves out of that hole. And so I just started studying kind of like personal money management, personal finance. I stumbled across Dave Ramsey, debt snowball, that kind of thing. And I started getting really interested in uh, in investing. And so I was talking to one of my buddies about it, who was a stockbroker at the time. And he was like, hey, look, if you're really interested in this stuff, he's like, you know, we have a broker training program. I can, you know, help you help you get in. And uh, so he did. So I became a, a stockbroker and uh, really dove headfirst into uh, into the industry and loved it. Just moved around as much as I could, just so that I could, you know, learn as much as I could from the inside. And um, in the beginning stages, it was a lot of interest in, um, you know, how the markets work, um, uh, different, uh, uh, you know, kind of from the, the standpoint of, you know, how do I become a better investor and a better trader? And then uh, over the course of a few years, slowly started becoming more and more interested in macro and realizing that really nobody inside the, the system uh, understood uh, or understands uh, macroeconomics at all. So little things like I'd, you know, I'd be trying to figure out how, you know, how inflation happens um, or what is the effect of uh, the Fed raising or lowering interest rates on the overall economy. Um, and there's there's really just, uh, you know, in, in the industry, just blinders on to that kind of stuff. It just almost, you know, at least at that time, uh, didn't matter at all. And I think post-2020 kind of changed a lot of that. You talk to your average financial advisor today and they know who Jerome Powell is and have, have a, you know, a, a more sophisticated understanding of how, you know, money printing can bleed over into some massive inflation. But Prior to 2020, it was just, you know, doesn't even matter at all. And uh, and so I, I began reading books and studying uh, outside, uh, you know, outside of the official corpus of knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, I stumbled upon people like, you know, Peter Schiff and Ray Dalio and, um, uh, you know, kind of got introduced to more like Austrian economics. And I just felt like the, you know, the, the scales are being lifted off my eyes. Like I was just, you know, uh, seeing a whole new world for the first time. And so uh, it got to the point where I didn't want to continue to do what I was doing. Number one, I was in a sales position making great money, but um, didn't enjoy what I was doing at all. Um, and also slowly became, got to the point where I didn't really believe in what I was selling anymore, um, given the stuff that I was learning. So in July of 2019, uh, I quit, 
started Heresy Financial. Um, that included a bunch of other things that I'm not doing anymore, but my YouTube channel kind of uh, kind of took off. And so in January of 2020 is when I really kind of just went all in on uh, just making YouTube videos um, to kind of just financial education was the was the main was the main goal. Uh, turned out to be great timing, obviously, because, you know, February 2020, the world fell apart. So <laughs> it was kind of uh, kind of OK timing there. Uh, but since then, that's what I've been doing, just trying to bring uh, uh, real financial cash. Uh, financial education uh, to the masses. Well, from one sales guy to another, you have to believe in what you're doing or it's just not, mm -hmm. it's just a drag at that point. So that's really interesting. So it really was, uh, you, you kind of just embarked on this journey, opened up a book or maybe a couple of videos. Austrian economics, I think to your point, it doesn't get talked about in the mainstream. It doesn't get talked about in governments. And anytime it does get brought up in governments, it's deemed as an extremist idea mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason. But we uh, just that... had, uh, we just had, uh, what's his name? Elon Musk made a, posted a tweet the other day with uh, uh, posting the road to serfdom by Frederick von Hayek, you mm. know? So you, it just started to show that the Austrian school, even though it's been kind of like this dirty little secret, it, if it wakens within the public market, there, there's some energy there that can change a lot for society and humanity, I think, because it kind of reveals the the, the, the dynamic nature of, of societies and of humanity, whereas traditional systems, they assume that humans and, and human ecosystems are just fixed and you can just operate these assumptions that way, which just doesn't seem to operate that way in reality. Do you guys uh, know, have you heard about the region beta paradox? No. Let's hear okay, it. So it's a, it's a paradox where if you're in a, uh, a worse situation that can actually result in a better result for you, better outcome, because it forces a different set of actions. Mm. So the typical example is if you're one mile away from something, you may choose to walk and it may take you, I don't know, 30 minutes to get there, depending on how slow you walk. But if you're two miles away from something, you're not going to want to walk for 45 minutes or an hour. So you're going to get in the car and you're going to get there in like, you know, a minute and a half. And so being in an objectively worse position can result in a better outcome because it forces a different uh, set of actions. And I think that's how things were for a long time that, uh, you know, the unipart, like de like left versus right, Republican versus Democrat. Like we're seeing that that was, um, you know, that system is starting to break down. People were OK with it because it was the official top down control. They were they were doing a good job of making things as beneficial for them and as bad as possible for everybody else without tipping over into catastrophe um, for a while until until it happened. Um, monetary policy was doing a good job at keeping things pretty bad, but not catastrophic for a while. And things are starting to uh, starting to break that, you know, they've accidentally gone too far. And now people are starting to wake up and realize uh, realize the reality. Um, it's one of the reasons why more people identify as independent politically than either uh, either of the parties in history today. Um, one of the reasons why, you know, more people know who the chairman of the Federal Reserve is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, starting in 2020, it was like it was a really uh, odd thing for me that so many people were uh, were talking about macroeconomics. It was, you know, a, a big eye opening thing. And you look at places that do have collapse, um, you know everybody's paying it. You have to pay attention to that stuff to survive. Like you look at people in Lebanon right now, everybody knows the hour by hour exchange rate of the euro to the pound to the dollar um, constantly because you have to, to survive. Um, and so uh, I, I think that's, you know, on one hand, it's like shows, you know, things are getting uh, kind of, uh, kind of bad. On the other hand, it's like, there's the silver lining of, Hey, that's what forces action. And, um, and so we could, we could be pulling out the other side, in, in a better spot. With everything that's happened over the last three years too, and to your point, it's kind of just like, you know, any, any position. It's like, let's say people are, people are losing their jobs right now, for example, that's putting them in a sort of uncomfortable position uh, as well to kind of figure out, okay, how do I, how do I deal with that? Um, some of the videos you talked about, like how inflation and spending and savings were like, rising and then coming back down right and now we're at a point where maybe it's like there's like a tightening of the labor market um so from your side or from your from what you're seeing right now who do you feel like is really at risk going into this next market cycle especially going into next year as well as it being an election year like what group of that labor market or labor group of people do you feel like is, is going to get is going to find themselves in that paradox probably at some point next year yeah, that's a good question. So uh, for some context, we see 
Um, over the last year and a half, maybe two years now, we've seen increased spending. Um, and that has been one of the things that has led like leading economists to say, hey, the economy is strong. We're going to have a, uh, a soft landing. Uh, but the problem is it's all being financed by debt. So we're mm -hmm. seeing debt uh, by every measure, um, all all forms of debt, whether it's auto loans, mortgages, Household, credit cards. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's all increasing. And so all these spending is being financed by debt. The issue with that is the personal savings rate is plummeting, dropping off of a cliff. So people have spent through their savings. Then they're going into debt to continue to keep their uh, spending the same, their, you know, their, their quality of life level from not dropping. Meanwhile, they have to continue to do that just to maintain because the prices are going up. So even if they're not um, uh, increasing their quality of life, just the, uh, the amount of money they have to spend to maintain that goes up because uh, prices are higher. And uh, again, that's being financed by debt. And then the, the nail in the coffin here is that interest rates are skyrocketing. So you look at like credit card debt and credit, average credit card debt is uh, the interest rate is like 23, 25% right now. Um, and so people are maintaining balances. Like there's a a significant percentage of the population that has that's carrying a uh, a balance on their credit cards 25%. I mean that's that's a hole that is very very difficult if not impossible for many to ever dig themselves out from. Um and so then you ask well how are people maintaining this and so we have to look at jobs numbers. And on one hand you do see payrolls increasing which means that when you ask companies hey how many people are you employing they're employing more people. They have more people on their payroll. But uh, when you look at the other survey uh, of jobs called the household survey, you ask individuals, are you working? And then how many jobs are you working? And are they full-time or part-time? Um, more people are carrying multiple jobs now than they used to. Um, and so those increasing payrolls, it's the same person working at Taco Bell and McDonald's. Um, and even worse than that, it's part-time. And so people are losing their benefits. Full-time labor is actually decreasing while part-time labor is making up the difference. And so people are now more than uh, in a long time making up their uh, income by working multiple part-time jobs rather than um, uh, you know carrying the, the one full-time job. So there's an argument to be said that you know at least people can still pay their bills. Like that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a collapse. Um, and it doesn't. But the path that we're on is unsustainable with spending and debt and interest rates. That's why defaults are increasing. And if that's being financed by um, uh, increasing part-time jobs, well, then those go on the chopping block once the spending stops. Because when the spending stops, that spending is somebody else's, like a corporation's income, and jobs get jobs get hammered. So the financial industry is the first place to see this. So we've seen pretty much every major financial institution and bank has started uh, cutting uh, jobs like crazy over the past like year, maybe year and a half now. A recent one was Schwab because they did a merger with TD Ameritrade and that completed a few months ago. And so they had a bunch of redundant jobs, uh, but also expenses are up and also the economy is not doing too hot. And so they slashed a bunch of jobs. It was all middle management, 100%. There was no uh, entry-level job cut Every single position there was maintained. There's none of the none of the higher ups. Uh, it was all um, middle to upper management, and so you have managers now have teams double the size on average, and um, that's my expectation of more and more of what we'll see, uh, because increasing technology allows increasing human output um, for the same amount of labor, um, except in the case where you don't really have um, uh, the technological technological capabilities. Uh, to do to do that right now. So you look at the lower level jobs that require like interacting with the physical world, AI and robots, it's not going to replace that anytime soon. Um, at some point in the future, 50 years, you know, whatever, maybe, but not in this next economic downturn, certainly. Um, whereas things like how many members can you manage on your team? Absolutely. That can that can go up. It's just a little bit of a harder role. So um, I would anticipate that in this next downturn, those are the kind of jobs that get put on the chopping block. Um, and then uh, obviously any redundant positions. You know, it's so, funny because, oh, go ahead, Dan. I was just going to comment on that because like, I agree with that, that yeah. those people who have had those middle management jobs for, and they could have been for the last 10 years, right? Because rates were low, businesses were borrowing, they were expanding their operation, the psychology with that group, and they're probably within the age of probably, I would say, 35 to maybe 50. They probably have started families. They've had this lifestyle for the last 15 to 10 years. They're very comfortable in that mindset. And they're reaching a point now, to your point, it's like it's not sustainable with the way the economy is going, but they're at a point where it's like, 
oh my God, you get rid of that. It's like there's other rippling effects related to housing, the house that they bought, right? Can they can they live in that? This is just like a foundation is so shaky. Exactly. Like that foundation, once it breaks, like that's gonna cue a group of dominoes that's gonna have a ripple effect in the rest of the economy. It, 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 the solution seems to be just basically putting a new coating of paint on the building to hide the cracks, you know, using these distorted metrics to demonstrate strength, GDP. But again, you can inflate GDP with debt. You know, so is is the market truly strong or is it just because I usually say the best metrics for economic strength is socioeconomic metrics. Is the standard of man going up or is it going down? If the standard of man's going down while your GDP is going up, all you're just doing is using debt to inflate and create this distorted reality. So it might be strong on paper from a Keynesian standpoint, but if you take an Austrian standpoint, no, we're going the entire opposite direction. And and it, you're starting to people realize, but how can you say strong when I feel like it's getting worse, you know, and there's this game going yeah. on in the market of this illusion, like the government's become more of a magician now to really maintain this illusion of strength, to keep this confidence in the market, to keep people spending. But, you know, it's going to fall on everybody because it, you can't sustain it forever. Yeah, 100%. So the uh, the comment you made about the quality of life increasing or decreasing um, being kind of the as objective of a standard as you can get. Um, with it being hard to measure, that's that's something that is uh, uh, really important to think about because um, looking back, like you know, five hundred years ago, um, you, life was life was labor and toil. Um, no such thing as retirement for for all of human history, right? You know, you, you go back far enough, it's like every minute of every hour of every day is pure survival, and every technological improvement, all progress that humanity makes is like okay, now we can. We can use fire to get more nutrients out of food by cooking it so that we can now spend more time, you know, hunting instead of foraging. And then we figure out we can bring the animals and the plants here instead of having to go out and look for them with the invention of farming. And then coal and the steam engine, we have machines that can now do the labor of hundreds or thousands of uh, of people, or maybe even do things that people, as many people as possible, still couldn't even do uh, altogether. So you get these big leaps in uh, in productive output. Where you say, okay, if I was to maintain the old lifestyle, um, the amount of human labor required to do that is a lot less. Now, people have this capacity for, um, you know, getting very used to uh, that new, higher, better quality of living, and then just increasing the amount of uh, uh, actual labor that they do in order to try and, you know, have have progress from there. Uh, but today, if you wanted to live like somebody lived 100 or 200 years ago, um, that quality of life with, you know, no electricity, like no heating, running water, like all, you know, all the modern conveniences be very, very cheap. You could, you know, work for a very small amount of the year to be able to, uh, to be able to live that way. Um, but when you look at the, the, a lot more of a short-term lens, um, when you see people having to take on, uh, multiple jobs to maintain the same quality of life that they were, that they had, let's say three or four years ago, and you're working now 60 hours or more per week, whereas you used to be able to work 40 hours per week, um, that's going in the wrong direction. And that, that short term, you know, in the long term, deflation always wins in the long term of human history, we always see progress. Um, but. In the short term, when you see these spikes and these dips, that's the result of manipulation. That's the result of the credit mm -hmm. cycle as a result of, you know, top-down intervention, uh, money printing. And um, and so those things don't have to happen, but you can see signs of those, uh, those cycles, uh, you know, the turning points in those cycles, um, like right now during times where people are living more abundantly than they should. I mean, this is a little bit anecdotal. But over the last couple of months, I've just been shocked. There's been more activity in like the like the high end malls and shopping centers and 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 parking places, restaurants that I've seen in in years. Um, meanwhile, everybody's complaining about like financially, life is getting a lot harder now than it was you know a couple of years ago. But people are spending like that's not the case. Uh -huh. And when you look at places right before a collapse like Lebanon in you know 2018. Um, I've got a friend who lives there and everybody was walking around with their, their Gucci bags and driving Mercedes and spending like, you know, life was great. And then bam, the collapse happens. Um, it's a false prosperity. Mm -hmm. And um, same thing, like, you know, the stories like before the Great Depression, like everybody was acting like things were, you know, amazing and like everybody was rich and it was it, it was a false uh, perception of wealth. Everything evaporated overnight. Now, I'm not saying that exact thing is going to happen again, but we're starting to see a lot of those, you know, anecdotal signals pop up.
You know, like people, people, it's like there's even an ego from an individual standpoint. Is like people don't want to reduce their standard of living in the face of everything going on. If you know that the conditions are changing, you know, typically you want your actions to change with it to make sure you can survive or mitigate these risks. But it doesn't seem like people want to change. They want to maintain the same standard and they'll accept more debt in order to accommodate that distorted truth. So it's a game of ego right now. But the thing is, you're, you're walking off a cliff because the moment the rug gets pulled under you, the government and the banks, they'll adjust themselves as they always do. But you as the individual, most likely you're going to get burnt because you're going to be the last one to figure this out. So it's, it's yeah. you know, it, we're in an odd position the way we are today because if people would change their behavior in the face of everything going on, Okay, let's start saving. Let's, you know, I, I, I get it at the same time. The government doesn't want people to save as much and they want people to spend because if they did this shift, then you're going to cause a deflation. Like if people said, I'm going to stop spending, I'm going to start saving again. Well, you're just going to, you're going to cause a deflation. So it's ironic. Government wants them to save, but at the same time, they actually don't really want them to save because you're going to mess with their metrics. Yeah, well, that's one of the the emergent um, uh, properties of a, a a complex system that you try and control from from the top down um, is is you get distortions one way or the other, and if it becomes too distort, you know, not even if it becomes too distorted, at some point that distortion flips and and goes the other way. So um, if you look at you know, let's let's go back to a completely free market economy and just look at the money. If everybody has a ton of savings, then um, nobody needs to borrow, which means that if there is one person who wants to borrow, they're going to be uh, having all the lenders, the savers compete uh, for their business. So they're going to get a really low interest rate. So large savings pool means really low interest rates, which means that um, everybody would like to lend, but there's just not a lot of borrowers. So everybody spends, it incentivizes doing something with that money. Things are cheap, money is cheap, borrow, spend, invest. Um, at some point though, as that continues, the savings pool gets lower, that dynamic shifts. And um, if, uh, if I don't have much savings, I'm gonna wanna borrow, but if the total savings pool is low, then there's really nobody bar to borrow from. So there's one person, that, let's say, that has, has savings. Well, then now all the borrowers are competing for that last bit to borrow. So interest rates are gonna be really high. We're bidding against each other. So the cost of money goes up. And so it incentivizes not spending and not borrowing because if I can save now, I can become a lender and I can make money on my money. And so there's an automatic equilibrium built into the system where the boom bust cycle exists individually only. Um, I save when I get to the point where I can't make money on my money. Now I spend, I invest, I consume. Uh, when I get to the point where that costs too much from the cost of money standpoint, now I know I need a real back and I need to save. And over the entire economy, that equilibrium is, mm -hmm. you know, it's shifting, it's, it's dynamic, but it keeps things in balance. And if one person does things wrong, goes too far one direction, they feel all the impact of that themselves. They learn to do better in the future. The more you uh, impose on that system, top-down control, whether you start off from one little uh, isolated fractionally reserved bank, all the way up to central banks, all the way up to you know the uh, entire world basically running off of one central bank, uh, the dollar uh, controlled by the Fed, you, uh, you scale that up uh, and uh, transfer that risk from the individual to the entire system. And so you're telling the entire system when you put low interest rates low, that money is abundant, go out and borrow and go out and spend, even though that's not the reality. Mm -hmm. uh, they've created more currency, you know, more units of money, but the savings pool in terms of purchasing power doesn't actually change. And so you're uh, uh, sending a false signal to the global economy, um, which means you drain the savings pool way faster than you should. And you uh, nobody's able to bring a lot of those projects to completion or you have a false sense of when profits will occur uh, because uh, of the uh, the low cost, the artificially low cost of money. So that creates this boom that is by nature impossible to be sustained. And so at some point that equilibrium has to come back in. We have to have at least a reversion to the mean, yeah. which means you're going to, you're going to have that, uh, have that bust after the boom. So the point is that the, the, Damage is done during the boom, and it's just revealed uh, during the bust. Um, the, it's the the malinvestment during that boom that makes the bust inevitable. I think a perfect example of that right now is 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 the the real estate market. Um, I was looking at properties down in Florida about six months ago, and those same properties have seen a reduction of around thirty five to fifty percent. 
So it's kind of like people are starting to realize it's like, oh, okay. And rates are obviously coming down now. Like if you're looking at the yields today in the last couple of weeks, like, yeah, they've slowly been starting to come down. So that's signaling that like, okay, we're probably at a top right now. But in terms of like the sort of ramifications of what's happening, I don't think nobody can really predict the specifics. Nobody really can. When it does happen, I think the ones like I think everybody here, when when it does happen, we're just going to look at us and say, well, this doesn't surprise us. Right. But from your perspective, what do you feel like that's going to be for everyone to realize, oh, my gosh, this is like this is the collapse that I guess that they've been saying, because the media has been saying we're in a recession, we're in a recession. Canada is officially or technically in a recession right now. The U.S., you're not quite there yet because I think your account, the GDP was up 5% or something like that. But like, what do you feel like is going to be that event primarily in the U.S. and maybe comment on North America as well? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, when we when you take a look at kind of the progression of things, um, I like to start um, with um, there's a hedge fund called called long term capital management. And yep. um, in 1998, um, they were, you know, engaging in. They were one of the first to engage in relative value trades, um, which is where you short one thing and you go long another that are, you know, almost uh, as close to identical as possible. You just do it at a, you know, the slightly different price. Um, and because you can only get, you know, one cent or a half a cent uh, profit on that uh, arbitrage, you have to load up with leverage and do that trade, you know, tons of times. And so then you get a real return on your own uh, capital. And it got to the point where everybody was copying them. Everybody was doing the same trade. They were the first ones. And then, uh, you know, something happened. And instead of those positions converging and allowing them to close close the, the trade out, the positions started widening and they started hitting um, loss limits, regulatory limits, and they had to start closing out their trades, which uh, when you close out a short, you have to buy it. So that drives the price up. When you close it along, you have to sell it. So that drives the price down. So it made the rest of their losses even worse. All the other banks and uh, institutions had to start doing the same thing. So very quickly, you started to see this could have uh, resulted in you know a big financial meltdown across the globe. So the Fed got the big firms on Wall Street together and said, you need to bail out long-term capital management um, and didn't engage in any bailout themselves, no change in monetary policy, nothing like that, but told Wall Street, take care of this. And so they did. They uh, they purchased it, absorbed the losses, uh, dissolved uh, LTCM, and um, the guys who started LTCM. Myron Scholes, right? Myron Scholes. Um, Black Scholes. Black and... Um, Black Scholes and... There's a third guy that never gets the credit, but he was Robert, there. <laughs> I think his name was Robert Merton, if I'm not Merton. mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. yeah Merton, yeah. Like, um, so, you know, the smartest, the book, there's a book, on, I think it's called the smartest guys in the world or, or smartest guys in the room or something. And, uh, anyway, um, so that, that's like the, that was the first seat setting the precedent for how to resolve big crises is, you know, like trying, trying to get some sort of bailout and fast forward to the dot-com bubble collapsing, the Greenspan put comes in and he lowers interest rates to soften the blow on the economy. Well, that just fuels the next crisis, the housing, the housing crisis by fueling the housing bubble. We know how that turned out. And every single time, um, you know, because dot-com bubble burst was just interest rates. Financial crisis was interest rates and the bailout of the banks and a few big companies. Um, fast forward from there, you get uh, like in 2020, not only did you have lowering interest rates to zero, not only did you have the bailout of the banks, but you also had the bailout of everybody with stimulus checks and you know uh, the pl uh, paycheck protection program and all that. And so you have this uh, uh, need for every time there's a future collapse that is fueled by the last bailout, um, the next bailout has to be even bigger. And um, the the thing that happened this last time was it was so big that all the losses were absorbed by the federal government. Um, and so that you kind of track that. Where were the losses from the last thing absorbed from that bailout? That's where the next place is going to be that's going to have the issue. And so when we look at the balance sheets and the um, positions, the debt positions that like corporations are in right now, large corporations, unbelievably healthy, actually. When you take a look at they are highly leveraged but they're making way more <laughs> on debt than they are paying on their debt. So they have borrowing, but they're also lending because interest rates are higher now. So they're lending to the government at higher rates than what they originally borrowed at. 
And so the income, the net interest paid on income is, um, you know, in a better place for large corporations than ever before. So we saw this big wealth transfer that went to, you know, large corporations and the government kind of took the brunt of that. So when you look at the financial position of the U.S. government, um, you know, interest costs alone massively skyrocketing. They're above a trillion dollars now. By the end of 2024, they're going to be 1.2 trillion. It's like a hockey stick uh, looking chart um, to, to the point where assuming interest rates stay, uh, you know, stay somewhat around where they are within a few years, the U.S. government will be trying to borrow more money. And it could be faster than, than a few years. We'll be trying to borrow more money than there will be money in the system available to be lent to them. There, it's, it's It'll be called a failed auction. They'll try and borrow money and there won't be enough at that auction to be lent to them. And um, at that point, money printing has to start again. Otherwise, you get a default. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and and when that happens, I think we tip back over into inflation. But I, I'm kind of watching the federal government, short-term interest rates, and the Fed's balance sheet kind of all together to see uh, when that tipping point is. There, there's been rumors. I kind of want to build on this because this is like what Nick and I talk about almost every single week at this point. But there's been a lot of I don't want to say a lot of murmurs or rumors, but there is a bit of a rumor that instead of a bailout, there's going to be a bail-in to kind of cancel some of this debt, right? And I don't think we've ever seen that probably in our lifetime in any financial system where there was like a bail-in where they just say, okay, well, don't get me wrong. Biden tried to do it with student debt. That by definition, I think is a, is a bail-in. You're just canceling a lot of student debt, but then they brought it back because they're just like, well, if that happens, we're going to have a massive hole that needs to get filled by, by the taxpayer, right? So I was just curious to know, uh, is that something that, you know, maybe you've seen, maybe just having discussions with people in the space. Um, is, is that something that could be on the horizon? Um, well, it kind of depends. So officially, like the a bail-in is with, with a bank. Like, so let's say a bank right. fails, then somebody with an account that has $250,000 or less, their account just moves to the bank that absorbs them. So you've got 200 grand in the bank account at, you know, uh, XYZ Citibank. Now you have $200,000 in your bank account with Chase Bank. So nothing changes for you. Um, if you have $300,000 in that bank account, though, now when your account moves to the other bank, you only have $250,000. So that limit, that cutoff is $250,000. When you look at like a bank collapse like Silicon Valley Bank, 90% of the deposits were over that $250,000 limit because it was all Silicon Valley companies that had all their you know money in there from raising money that they were using for payroll. So it would have shut down a few big billionaires um, who had a lot of money in there and shut down a bunch of uh, tech companies, startup companies. And so the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, they made the decision to just, uh, you know, fund, print the money to fund those accounts so that they wouldn't become zero um, and transfer them to a new bank account. Typically, what happens, though, is you get the bail in above the 250,000. Just for some nuance so that anybody who cares is wondering, like the technical difference. Um, When you have money in a bank account, you're a lender, you're a creditor to the bank, they owe you those dollars back. Um, In a business collapse, creditors come first. And so all the assets are liquidated, you pay off the people that you owe money to first. Um, And so the 250,000 is the limit that the, the government guarantees. Above that is called the bail in. So if you have any money in an account above that, then your dollars are converted to equity. Your debt is converted to equity. So you become an owner. Well, if you're an owner of a bank that just collapsed, you don't get anything for those for those shares. Um, uh, or if you do, it's probably a lot less. And so that's what that's what technically a bail in is. Now you can kind of abstract that um, to uh, to a larger economic collapse and wonder, okay, if the federal government experiences issues and they need to uh, expropriate wealth in order to fund their the purchasing power that they that they need. There's a couple ways to do that. You can do that through taxes, although in an economic downturn that becomes really difficult. Um, you can do that through borrowing, though. In the next crisis, that's probably going to be the issue: is that they're going to try and borrow and they won't be able to, um, or at least won't be able to borrow enough. And so then the question is, where do they get that extra purchasing power from? You could do some sort of a wealth confiscation, um, which is uh, um, appropriating pension funds, 401ks. Unrealized um, taxes, unrealized gains that they want to go after. Yep. Taxes on unrealized gains, things like that. Um, In my opinion, 
so a move like that will be so wildly unpopular that the people in power will will know that the negative um uh, response to that will the backlash and the, the the downfall will be a lot worse than anything they'll gain from that. So in my opinion, they'll simply just print the money they need to fill the difference. And they'll do that through the Fed returning to QE. Fed buys treasuries off the open market. That frees up space on the balance sheets of banks to take that new cash and loan it to the government again so that those auctions don't fail in the future. So we just get a return to QE. That'll trigger inflation again. Um, but People will care a lot less about that than seeing, oh, I had 300,000 in my 401k. Now I only have 250,000 in my 401k uh, because it's a lot, a lot less, uh, it's a lot more difficult to understand, um, even though, even though it's the same thing, it's, it's, it's appropriating wealth. Um, it's a lot more sneaky. And so I think that's what they'll do. What do you, what are some of the, let's go a little more just general. What are some of the risks or what do you see playing out in the next couple of years? Like in this cycle shift? Obviously, there's a generational shift, there's a geopolitical shift, there's a cultural shift. Like on almost every scale, there's a shift occurring. And obviously, this is having a global and domestic problem. How do you see things shifting over the next couple of years? Whether it's culturally, philosophical, politically, economic, just how do you see things? Or different if you have different hypotheses? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, it so... It it, it kind of depends on um, it, it's it's a little bit more easy to point at hey this is this is an an area of problem we're going to see something you know some something happen here as an issue it's a little bit harder to see um, what the lo longer term response will be to it so failed government auction return to QE inflation starts up again. Um, as a result, interest rates for everybody else go up because inflation is reignited, but the government continues to borrow at low interest rates. So we're essentially inflating the money supply in order to fund the government's expenses. That's about as far as you can, you can like with any degree of accuracy, say, hey, these things are very likely to play out. In terms of how the average person is going to respond to that, in terms of you know how the political environment may change, I mean, that's all a lot more difficult to say, uh, you know, how those things unfold. When you look at nations in the past that have um, gone down somewhat similar paths, um, you know it takes it takes a long time. Like you read in you read in history books about the fall of Rome, you read about the Great Depression, the collapse of Weimar Germany, and the hyperinflation there. You read about these things in the course of you know you finish a book in eight hours. Well, that thing that you just read about in eight hours may have taken place over the course of five to 10 years or 100, 200 years. Um, and so you see the cultural changes, the political dynamics change, the, um, you, you know, th those things, they're a lot more difficult to recognize in the moment because in the moment, you're seeing all the potential options um, or not even all the potential options. You're just seeing potential options. You don't have the, the, uh, benefit of hindsight to see which one uh ended up playing out and the reasons why making it seem um uh making it seem obvious because in the present it's never obvious a, a good example of that is when you look at um like ray dalio has plotted the over the last you know i think 500 years or so the rise and fall of great powers that around the world england china us yeah right and so when uh when the u.s I believe it was when the U.S. was rising, or uh, right prior to that. Um, it was uh, it was not clear if you were in that moment whether the United States would be the next global power or whether Germany would be the next global power. Um, in, in those moments, there's always going to be multiple things happening at once, and in hindsight, it's like, oh yeah, it's obvious because that's what that's what ended up happening. But in the moment, it uh, it wasn't obvious. So like right now you would look and say, okay, well, it looks like, you know, based on China's momentum over the last 30 or 40 years, it seems obvious if that continues. Um, but there's there's no guarantee that that continues. And there's good arguments to make that it won't continue. And so uh, we don't have that benefit of hindsight yet. Um, but uh, but in terms of in terms of some of those uh, issues and how the issues will be will be resolved or try to be resolved, um, that I think those those things are a little bit more more clear. It's like uh, it's like when you're looking at a chart 
everyone's an expert after the move, right? You, there's no yeah. way of knowing uh, the future. But I think with all the pieces that we're seeing and all the data mm. that's coming in, you can kind of anticipate what's happening. Um, I noticed that you have a couple gold bars in the background there. So obviously, it seems like you're in the precious metal space. You're in that game too. Um, I think, and Nick and I agree with your thesis, like if there is QE at some point again, which seems there's probably a high probability of that, if what we think is going to happen happens, that's going to mean another opportunity for to get in, you know, some 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 hedge in the marketplace. So, um, what's sort of your hedging strategy on, on on this type of environment that they're that we're in right now? What do you like coming out? I guess even for the next twelve months, even for for potential investors. Yeah, well, first a disclaimer: those those that you see are <laughs> those are fake. Um, <laughs> I think uh, based on the size of the, they're like they're like prop bars from yeah. uh, from Amazon. Based on the size, I think that'd be like ten million dollars worth of gold <laughs> or something. So absolutely no way that I'd be just keeping <laughs> those out in the open, uh, you know, tempting somebody to come and try and find where I am. So uh, so no, those are I, I don't have any uh, any physical gold with me. Uh, just for anybody, <laughs> just as, a, as a disclaimer. But I do really uh, I do think that gold is a fantastic hedge. I do own a lot of gold because when you look back throughout history, is like the. Um, something called the Lindy effect. The longer something has been true, the more likely it will continue to be true in the future. So when you look at a religion, let's say like uh, um, Islam versus Scientology, uh, which one will be around in a thousand years? More likely than not, Islam will be around and Scientology will not. Um, just from an age perspective, Islam has been through more governments, more regimes, more cultures, more time, more chances. It's proven through the things that the world and history can throw at it and it's survived versus something like Scientology is a lot smaller. It's a lot newer. It hasn't survived all those things. And so it's a lot more untested. So if we're going to place our money on one or the other, I'd be placing my money on Islam existing in a thousand years over Scientology. Same thing with like the pyramids versus the Eiffel Tower. Which one is going to exist? Well, apart from the fact that one is made out of metal and it'll oxidize in the next 500 years versus the pyramids have been around for however many thousands of years because they're made of rock. They've withstood every climate, every culture, every government, every, you know, war, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the Eiffel Tower is a lot newer, hasn't been, you know, hasn't been able to prove itself to stand against those things. So when you take a look at something like gold, purchasing power for the last thousands of years during different governments, during different religions, on different continents, on different, you know, everything that the world and human history could possibly throw at it, the one ounce of gold still buys the same amount of stuff that one ounce of gold could 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, um, except in those things that technology makes cheaper. And then that ounce of gold will buy a lot more of that thing than it used to. Um, but, uh, but in terms of things that technology has not yet made cheaper, like haircuts, uh, or a three-piece suit. Um, a three-piece suit today, you know, a custom three-piece suit costs around, you know, 1800 2000 2200 bucks. Um, it was about one ounce of gold 300 years ago. Um, and so those kind of things stay very constant. And so um, that statistically, that would suggest that that will continue forward into the future, mm -hmm. that regardless of what happens to any other currency, any regime, any government, that the purchasing power. So it's a good savings vehicle. I like to have a good chunk of my portfolio in there just as my savings, my reserves. Um, and I, that's that's a, also a good kind of like lens to look at your overall portfolio through is because we don't know how anything will play out. We don't know how long things will take. We don't know the severity of you know the damage. So basically the, the number one rule with investing is you want to limit your downside risk before you try and bet on anything to the upside. Like you want to make sure that you're not going to, you know, as much as you can, as much as you can, you want to make sure you're not going to die tomorrow before you try and plan on, you know, what you're going to spend your money on when you're, you know, 85 years old from your 401k and your, you know, your pension, your social security, because if you don't make it that long, it's not going to matter. Um, and so you want to limit your downside risk as much as possible before you bet on the upside. And so um, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, hedging your portfolio using simple option strategies. I like gold. I like playing uh, with small uh, asymmetric upside opportunities. I view Bitcoin as one of those. Um, so I like to have a you know about a 5% allocation to Bitcoin and just forget about it forever because the worst case scenario, it goes to zero and you lose 5% of your portfolio. Best case scenario, it becomes worth a large percentage of your portfolio, maybe even a majority. So I like playing with uh, uh, asymmetric bets where 
if it doesn't work out, you lose a little bit. If it does work out, you make a lot. And um, and then limiting your downside risk. Yeah, no. The um, And it's funny because going back to the thing we were saying before was the reversion to the mean. Because throughout history, there's always a reversion to the mean. And for me, it's when that does happen, when things get as chaotic as they could ever get, the only it's 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 like um a, a little island in the middle of a storm in the ocean. It's it gives me a, a safety place to stand on the ground and let the storm pass, and then I can go back into the water and go out and adventure into the ocean again and take risk. So it's it's that safety net, and it and it goes back to history. There's something beautiful about it. There's something psychology. It's it's tied to our psyche. It's tied to our humanity. It's tied to not it, to nature. It's tied to history. It you know, and it we've forgotten this in our history, you know, ever since we took it out of the gold standard and we took it out of our, our educational system, you know, people used to see it, well, like the last decades or so, people used to see it as a, as a useless metal that did nothing. It's just, it's just a shiny rock as they say. But it's like, to say that is like, you're just ignoring how societies were built. Like how, if we didn't have these concepts of currencies and gold and backing, how could societies have been really built out? There would have been no way to really save and build some sort of sustainable construct in an economic framework. And also, it, it just, I feel that history needs to be highlighted a little more when we talk about gold and silver, because it's such a beautiful thing. And you look at the history and you see how it stood the test of time. It's like, why would you reject it? You have to embrace it. it, it it's it, it's done what it's meant to do. And so we should embrace that as a, as a Western societies, because we've kind of forgotten that. Well, even just like, I mean, that's, I, I agree with you. For most people, that's that's a large ask. It's like some of those are just beliefs um, that are that are hardwired in that you know don't care about those kind of things. Um, there's also uh, recency bias, which is very difficult to uh, overcome. Somebody has to be very intentional about uh, examining their biases, recognizing them, and then uh, intentionally trying to look at it from the opposite perspective to see if there's uh, any area where there's wrong. They're wrong, and that's a very difficult thing to do. So I, I would even say it's it's enough to just look at okay, in the 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 most recent widely accepted current accepting of uh, of a portfolio diversification is is a uh, a trait that you would like to your your portfolio to exhibit. Okay, what does diversification mean? Means you have uncorrelated assets, meaning when one does good or bad, another one is not doing that exact same thing. Because if everything's going up and down together, it's not diversified. That's not uncorrelated. It's just one thing. They all go up and down at the exact same time. When you look at the performance of gold versus something like the S&P 500 over the past 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, there are certain time periods where gold massively outperforms the S&P 500. And there are other time periods where the S&P 500 massively outperforms gold. Right now, over the last 20 years, gold is very uh, handsomely outperform the S&P 500. So even if you don't want to look at it as a savings vehicle, or if you want to look at it as a useless rock, I don't care. Like it's at least good to have a little bit of it in your portfolio to improve your performance because its performance is uncorrelated to the stock market. And you could have more money right now if you invest in gold and SPY versus just SPY. It's all about figuring out what's moving the market right now. So that's, I mean, we're, we're, everything you're talking about makes sense, right? Especially with, uh, again, the possibility that inflation comes back. I think there's a very high probability of that just based on well, where the me, housing market is too. Me and Dan, we used to talk all the time about the liquidity factor. For me, it's it's in, like, I look things from like, again, I study Austrian economics too. So I love behavioral economics. So I kind of take a game theory perspective to things. So if I'm a government, and in the midst of everything going on, I need to maintain this illusion of wealth. I need to maintain this geopolitical conflict that I'm that I'm dominating around the world. In the face of all this, where trust is collapsing, we're deglobalizing. There's there's no more collaboration, any concept. There's more geopolitical tension. There's a lot of debt. Liquidity is my only safety net. If I don't maintain liquidity as a as a central ego, as a central authority, then if liquidity is gone, then I lose control of everything. Liquidity is the only tool I have to make sure I can keep my game going. So therefore, by default, if liquidity is the key for me, then that means inflation is the byproduct of my is that of that tool. So that's how well, I kind of look at it for. Yeah. And, and for anybody who like, you know, the, the concept of liquidity is, you know, you, you can you can get really nuanced. I, I like to look at it as 
when something is extremely illiquid, the, the value of anything is simply uh, what would somebody pay for it? So you look at something like, um, you know, a share of Apple. Well, I, actually, that's that's what 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 is Apple going for right now? One ninety four. Um, last time I yeah, charged. One ninety four. Okay. All right. So Apple's going for one ninety four right now. So as an individual, it doesn't matter how many shares of Apple you have. You could sell all of them right now for one ninety four without moving the market. Maybe maybe Warren Buffett's uh, position uh, with Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, they own a lot of Apple, so if they tried to sell all their Apple right now, it would it would move the market down. Um, and so uh, liquidity is just what will somebody pay for this? So Berkshire Hathaway has the same thing that you do. They have Apple. You have Apple. They could not exit their position right now at 194. So their position is in theory worth 194 per share. But right now, if they tried to sell it, maybe it's actually only worth 150 per share. Maybe it's worth less. Uh, who knows how, how liquid that market is right now if they see Berkshire Hathaway trying to dump everything. Um, and so uh, liquidity is, it, it's just a measure of how much uh, how much is your thing worth. And if you need to access what you think it's worth, can you actually get that? Mm -hmm. And in illiquid markets, um, it's you know sometimes not worth anything. Like you wouldn't be able to have somebody come and take ownership uh, uh, of it from you with any amount of money. And so that's uh, um, that that's a, a huge concern um, that uh, you know liquidity is kind of like the like like you said the foundation. If if there's not a, a reasonable if you, if it's not reasonable to think that you could exchange it for that amount of money at any time, especially when things get bad, then maybe it's not actually worth that much. I mean, we want to continue this conversation as well. Um, I know the time is of the essence, but uh, Joseph, we want to thank you uh, so much for coming on and, and just sharing your insights. Uh, where can the uh, where can the listeners find you? Uh, YouTube. Uh, my YouTube channel is Heresy Financial. Um, I put up a few videos per week, and then I'm also uh, fairly active on Twitter as well, uh, X, and uh, handle there is at Heresy Financial. Yeah, awesome. and uh, guys, definitely check out one of his videos. It's called "What WTF" or "What the fuck is happening to gold right now." Uh, lots to talk about there, so we'll leave it at that, Joseph. Again, thanks for coming on, and. I think there's a lot of lot of stuff to look forward to going into next year, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. And thank you again for having me on. Of course. Likewise. And we'll see you next time, guys, on the New Gen Mindset Podcast. Ciao, guys. Take care.